Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. So we sat down to record this, and turns out she has a lot to say in Chapter 4, and we went off on a number of rabbit trails and tangents. So we have a Part 1 and a Part 2. So this is Part 2 of Chapter 4, Parents as Inspirers. The life of the mind grows upon ideas. She goes on, you know, this life, which we call education, receives only one kind of sustenance. There is one form of food, and that is ideas. Webster says idea is a formulated thought or opinion, whatever is known or supposed about something, or an entity, a thought, a concept, a sensation, or image that is actually or potentially present to consciousness. So that is what an idea by Webster is. Hmm. So this is where the quote is, you may go through years of so-called education without getting a single vital idea. And that is why many a well-fed body carries about a feeble, starved intelligence. She does not hold back on the punches on this one. She, no. she feels it is a crime against children when they are not allowed ideas and or when they're not fed ideas well let me let's finish this sentence then and no society for the prevention of cruelty to children cries shame on the parents and she gives the example of this 15 year old girl who spent two years at school without doing a single lesson because the mother wanted that Mm -hmm. the mother wanted the mother felt that what was important was her fancy needlework. Mm-hmm. And Miss Mason is just deriding her, saying, this is not okay. And we haven't experienced that vital stir, which marks the inception of an idea. So when we finish our education, when we finish our official schooling, we close up our books and our minds and remain pygmies in the dark forest of our own dim world of thought and feeling. Mic drop. Exactly. <laughs> she she can end it right here, and and that was scathing. Pygmies. Pygmies. I will say though that uh, that sounds a lot like my college education. Partly because I knew what I was going to school for, and what I was going to school for had no practical analogies to the job that I was doing. So I went to school as an as an electrical engineer, and I studied computer chips and computer code and programming of computers. And when I went, when I graduated, I immediately went into the building and construction world. So I went from learning about power that you wouldn't even be able to feel if it touched you to power that's going to kill you. So what I learned in school had very little to do with what I'm doing as a career. And so I can, I can very much understand what she's saying, but it's possible to pass even the university's local examinations with credit without ever having experienced the vital stir. I went through school just wanting to get done with it. Mm-hmm. But... When I finished my education, quote unquote education, yeah, when I, when I finished my education, when I got my degree, that's when my education started. And that's when I started learning about the electrical engineering world of building systems. And then you had to study for the PE, the professional for, exam. Well, first I had to study for the FE, and then I had to study for the, the PE, which the, is the professional engineering exam. The fundamentals in, of engineering. Yeah, the fundamentals of engineering exam, which is the first one you take. And then you take the professional engineering exam, which is an eight-hour exam. 
And I will say I'm glad I'm not an architect because while their tests are not eight hours, they take like nine of them. It's ridiculous. And they have to know everything. I think a lot of this comes to the the fact that there's there's studies and surveys out there that say that adults have not picked up a book or adults have not read yeah. more than two books in the last year. Yeah. And that urge to learn and urge to better yourself is not there. The spark has not taken hold of you. And it was, that is schooling. Now schooling is done. Mm -hmm. I am not going to do that again. Mm -hmm. And yes, you continue learning things, but you don't actively search out and seek for knowledge. Right. And it's, it's a very different thing to gain experience in a career at a profession and actively search and seek knowledge or study something crazy like philosophy or, or music or poetry, things that require abstract thought. I think that's a failing of society at large where it separates life into compartments. Mm -hmm. This is your education. This is your home life. This is your work life. This is your family life. Where once you have finished your, this is your education life, you're done with it. You're no longer a college student. And you can turn that off. Yeah. Where where she's saying the better definition is it's uh, atmosphere, a discipline, a life. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, your education should never end. You should always be hungering to read something, to learn something, to understand something, to to think about something. When you run into something you don't understand, it should be your desire to figure it out. And it, it might not be your desire to figure it out because you want to learn how to recreate it. Like, I can't draw worth a lick, but I'm learning to appreciate it. I'm learning to learn about it. One thing that reminds me of is as as life has changed for us, as I went from school to working in an office to being pregnant to having an, a newborn, an infant, I do a lot of reading, a lot of, okay, ha- uh, research and reading about these things. Mm-hmm. And, and as each phase of life has come, I've done that research for that phase. And now we're at education phase and we're reading all of these books. Guess what we're doing now. But each of those things continue to enhance my education, Mm -hmm. even though none of it is formal schooling. Yeah. And with my last pregnancy, I had given away all my pregnancy books. (laughs) Like, I, I don't I don't need these anymore. I've done that research, found out it was twins. So I had to go get some more. But at the same time, it gave me another thing to research. It was, you know, how is a twin pregnancy different? Because I had no idea. I had three other pregnancies, but I had no idea how different a twin pregnancy was. Yeah. And it's very different. It's very different. The same. But it's the same. And it's it's fascinating. Yeah. We could spend a lot of time on that. But we're not going to. Unlike sports. <laughs> because sports is <laughs> so important. So she talks about ideas and defines it as a living thing of the mind. According to Plato, who was in 400-ish BC, Francis Bacon, who was in the 1500s, and then moving on to Samuel Taylor Coolridge, 
who was in 1772 to 1834. So he was at the turn of the previous century. And she really likes that guy. She quotes him a lot, coming up here in a little bit. An idea strikes us, impresses us, seizes us, takes possession of us, rules us. So it's a very active Mm -hmm. thing, a a living, a live thing of the mind. What was interesting to me is the, the next point. Why do you devote yourself to this pursuit, that cause? Well, because 20 years ago, such and such an idea struck me is the sort of history which might be given of every purposeful life. Makes me think about what we're doing right now. Why are we doing this? Why are we researching this? Well, because, what, five years ago you went to a conference and this idea struck you and you went, huh. Well, more than that, why did she spend her entire life doing this? Yeah. Because when she was, I think it was 16, when her parents died, she devoted her life to education. Mm-hmm. She never married. She never had children. And this idea struck her that children are born persons and they're worth educating and they're worth giving this fullness of life. Yeah, I thought I thought that was interesting because, you know, I I think about other people and we'll get to this in a little bit when we get to the genesis of an idea. But you think about people like Elon Musk, who comes up with crazy ideas and things, you know, the Tesla cars, tunnels for subway systems and space travel and all kinds of different stuff. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, who developed the iPhone and the iPod before that and the iPad. Well, Macintosh he, he revo- as a brand. revolutionized everything on he, that side. Yeah, he revolutionized handheld devices. Uh, you, you think about even, even uh, uh, you think about Bill Gates and the fact that he revolutionized how we use computers. And what do we use still? A Windows operating system and Windows uh, applications. And even if you're using the Apple type operating system and applications they're ripped off from the windows ones well you still use word and excel you might not you might use the mac versions of those but they're the mac versions of word and excel there you go so uh, you know you you look at you look at any of those and, and they had an idea this is how you get this is how you make this thing better this is how we do something we've never done before she gives an example of the progress of an idea and talks about Columbus perceiving that the change of the, the change in the magnetic needle which I did not know that he was the one who discovered that did you do any research on that I did not do research on that but I did look up the year of Columbus because <laughs> years so he sailed you know 1492 Columbus sailed, Columbus the, sailed ocean the ocean blue. blue so that was when he was doing his um traveling the this poor pilot became the promiser of kingdoms and i have heard that he's not exactly the greatest of navigators not exactly the greatest of pilots but he had this idea mm-hmm. again idea that hey if i sail to the west i should be able to reach india and china india mhm so he had so he acted upon it yep and did all the work to make it happen and yep got the Spanish monarchy to back him and he found a new continent and, and apparently India. the change of the magnetic needle. Yeah. I'd be curious to look that up. I'm not going to right now. I searched for Columbus needle flip and I got us house election results in 2018 and flip cancer now. So the genesis of an idea is that it is presented to chosen minds by a higher power than nature. And we see how that that works. 
This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 28. And I actually need to pull that up because I want to read previous to that. Isaiah XXVIII. Yeah, I don't know why she like told you the book and not the actual passage. Well, that's the chapter. XXVIII. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, the footnote on the next page. Isaiah XXVIII. Did you actually look it up? Yes. That's funny. Sorry, I failed at reading Roman numerals. Uh, reading is hard. Oh, I failed at reading Roman numerals too. I we we already discovered that. Well, you did it on four. <laughs> I feel better about you know not doing twenty eight. Yep, four. I knew two X's was twenty. So whom shall he, the Lord, teach knowledge, and whom shall he make understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. And then he goes on to say, uh, talking about lying judgment and your covenant with death. And and then it says, give ear and hear my voice, hearken and hear my speech. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow, doth he open and break the clods of his ground. And God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. This cometh from the word from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. So it's interesting how methodical and laid out it is that precept upon precept, line upon line, it happens that way. Hmm. All of these things are taught, the which one happens with which thing mm -hmm. and how it does in, in what order. Yeah. And I think that the generations of man are too short to continually build all the precepts in one lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. So so as as things are revealed slowly, it's not because they're not true. Mm -hmm. It's because our capability is not to process that much all at once. Mm -hmm. I read a bumper sticker. It was uh born too late to explore the wild west, born too early to explore space. Born right on time to vote for Trump. Oh goodness! And it was it was gag worthy, but at the same time it was yeah we we live in an era where there's no great exploration going on right now that the layman can just jump into and be like well we're gonna go over there because no one else is no space race either yeah there's Not no the space 60s. race where you can just kind of sign up to go live in a in a faraway colony. Interesting. Our our pursuits are one of education, are one of intellect, are one of science, getting to that next thing. And you talk to scientists, uh, astrophysicists, or I guess I don't talk to them, but I listen to people talk to them. And they're like, yeah, we're absolutely going to be able to explore other planets. Is it going to happen in my lifetime? Absolutely not. Hmm. Is it going to happen in my children's lifetime? Probably not. Will it happen? Absolutely. We will absolutely explore other planets physically. It absolutely will happen. Interesting. And so you've got the most prominent scientific thinkers of the day who are looking forward to the time when someone will be able to physically walk on Mars or find the non-planet Jupiter and feel it. That terminology leads me to Hebrews, to the affirmation of Abraham. He looked for something that he did not see. Mm -hmm. He knew it would happen. 
He knew it would not happen in his lifetime Mm -hmm. or his son's, but he knew it would happen. He knew it would happen. Interesting. That's not a, that's not a correlation I'd ever made. Yeah. And God knows it all. He does. And he knows what we need at which time and in what quantities. Mm -hmm. So anyways, ideas. Moving on to an idea may exist as an appetency. I looked that word up. Good. It is a longing or desire, a natural tendency or affinity. Ah. And this is this is the idea of atmosphere, where mm-hmm. it's kind of there. An idea can be a distinct, concrete idea. Mm-hmm. I want to fly. Or kind of an idea, a vague instinct towards something. We need to move faster. We should be able to move faster. How does that work? In in the example of the Wright brothers. Or, uh, yeah, the Wright brothers were, we need to fly. With a poet, there's beauty. And I know I can write it down. And they're held in this thought environment, which surrounds the child as an atmosphere, which he breathes as his breath of life. And in this, and this atmosphere in which the child inspires his unconscious ideas of right living emanates from drum roll his parents mm-hmm. so now we're back we, we came full circle and we're right back to the parents job and responsibility parents as inspirers to excite this appetency towards something towards things lovely honest and of good report is the earliest and most important ministry of the educator how shall these indefinite ideas which manifest themselves in appetency be imparted they're not to be given of set purpose nor taken at set times They are held in that thought environment which surrounds a child as an atmosphere which he breathes as breath of life. That's the one I read. Yeah, that's why I stopped. And and she finishes the section with the wonderful, oh, the wonderful and dreadful presence of the little child in the midst. Because they're sponges and will repeat any bad word you say. Not the good ones, the bad ones. Just the bad ones. That's not true. It's not. Because Naomi was saying, apparently... And using it in the correct form earlier tonight. Apparently, they like playing with buttons a lot. Yeah, you're right. That is apparent. They did. They do like playing with buttons. She was she was picking up buttons off of the floor. Lily and Isaac have recently found the buttons. And they love putting them in things, pouring them from one cup to the next, and back, and back, and back, and back. But it's interesting how you indefinitely and intentionally censor yourself around kids. When you were playing Frisbee, we were on the sideline at one point, (laughs) just watching and eating dinner and being out there because it was a gorgeous day. And one of the guys on, I even think it's the opposing team. He was on the opposing team. Cursed somehow because he missed a pass or Mm -hmm. something. And as he was running back... He apologized to us and said, hey, sorry, I did not mean to say that in front of your kids. Mm -hmm. That's not what I do in front of kids. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And there's just this natural inclination to not do wrong in front of children, to not be crass. Because we know that children are sponges. And even those who don't have children, they know that children are sponges because they themselves are sponges. Also, Paul's a good guy. And it's easy to, to censor yourself. Or it's hard to censor yourself, but easy to do it around children. It's easy to do it around children if you're not doing it full-time. Doing what full-time? Censoring yourself. It can be hard to censor yourself full-time. Yeah. 
So moving on. <laughs> a child draws inspiration from the casual life around him. And this got me thinking about quality time versus quantity time, where you you have the saying, you know, it doesn't matter if you spend a lot of time with them as long as the time you spend is quality. But this casual life is not in short snippets. Mm -hmm. It is day in, day out, living life with your family, with your child, where quantity is what matters in the giving of all of these the passing on of all of these traits. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but that's how you build relationships is through yeah. quantity time. You don't build relationships through quality time. You can. It's harder. But you get to know someone by spending time with someone. That's why phone calls are a, a poor substitute to actually being with people. That's why when we started dating, she was, Crystal was going to go to camp. And I said, well, I've done a long distance relationship before and that didn't work out. I'm going to, Quit my job, which was a great high-paying job, and go work at a camp, which was a terrible low-paying job. But I wanted to spend time with the girl that I thought I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And we ended up spending the rest of our lives together. And, and it's also the reason that we moved to where we're at right now. We're in, uh, we're in Virginia right now. We moved from Texas, where we had some friends. It was a, it was a great place to be. But we weren't around our family, and we wanted our children to know our family. I, I wanted me to know my family. We lived down the street from my cousin, who I knew as a kid, but he's 10 years older than I am. But now we're, parent, we're both parents of children that are about the same age, and I now have a relationship with him that I wouldn't have had before if the only time I saw him was at random family reunions once every 20 years. So just by being close to him, by going and playing frisbee with him, by going to a bar after we play frisbee, by seeing them every Sunday at, at mom and Debbie's house. We now have a relationship with our family that did not exist before because we spent time with them. Time doing stupid stuff. Time doing great stuff. But time. Yep. And speaking of censoring myself, I, I have totally changed some of the language I use. I was playing with Jed, my cousin, on uh, Xbox Live with my brothers who live in Albuquerque. And they were getting a kick out of the words I was using as uh, exclamations of whatever. I think I used dagnabbit and darn it. And I think I even said blast. Oh, blast. And my brothers who one is a framer, the other's a, a cook. They just, they couldn't get enough of the words that I was using because by the nature of their professions, they're they use the language that is uh, used in their professions. And they don't have children, so they don't have to censor themselves unless they're with me, and they do. But they were getting a kick out of the fact that I used parent words. Like, oh, you're such a dad. <laughs> yep. Dagnabbit. There is no way of escape for parents because this hangs about them as its atmosphere about a planet. The thought environment of the child. So where the child gets those endearing ideas is from the parent, which should push us to higher and better, should yeah. push us to censor ourselves. It should. And it does. Towards, and, and this gives them their lifelong appetency toward things sordid or things lovely, things earthly mm -hmm. or divine. Okay. Definite ideas. Not the ones that hang about you like an atmosphere. 
but those ones that are conveyed as meat to the mind. From the seed, they germinate, events, images. So she moves on to what Coolridge is saying about definite ideas. Those ones that are conveyed as meat to the mind. I don't know. Do you have anything here? I didn't really have anything here. She, it's, a, it's another long quotation of Coolidge where she's, she's talking about what, what they are. And, and I think Coolidge does a great job of explaining them. They're conveyed as meat to the mind. From the first or initiative idea as from a seed, successive ideas germinate. Events and images and lively and spirit-stirring machinery of the external world are like light and air and moisture to the seed of the mind which would else rot and perish. I think this is one place where she's quoting somebody she agrees with. I I agree with that. She she likes uh, the work of Coolidge, and I think she agrees with at least the portions of it that she's quoting here. So, I don't know. I didn't really have anything from there. I didn't really have anything for the next section either, the Platonic Doctrine of Ideas. So unless you have anything for either of those sections. Uh, an idea is a distinguishable power self-affirmed and seen in its unity with the eternal essence i don't think plato was quote-unquote christian no obviously it was before christ but he was a, a greek philosopher mm-hmm. and therefore would have been steeped in greek religion but he still sees the purpose and place of a the eternal essence so then we move on to you know talking we've been talking about ideas and how they are. And she talks about the fact that an idea is everything. And at the end, only the ideas which have fed his life is taken into the being of the child. All the rest is thrown away, which means they're garbage. Or worse, they're like sawdust in the system. An impediment and an injury to the vital processes. So at best, anything other than an idea is garbage. At worst, it's sawdust and it grinds up everything and it messes up the the functioning of how things work. It goes back to where she's talking about if the family ceases to be a part of the living whole and becomes positively injurious as decayed tissue in the animal organism. So she reserves strong words for when things intentionally uh, foul up the system. Yeah. Whether it's in the family or whether it's in education. The, these are these are strong thoughts. This is a big deal to her. You don't screw up the education of children. Well, and she's saying at the beginning, it's there's these four different modes of thought. Whether you're filling a receptacle, inscribing on a tablet, molding plastic matter, or nourishing a life. Th- those are kind of the four branches that she sees... Mm-hmm. In educational theory. I don't think she says which one she believes in specifically here, but I'm pretty sure it's nourish a life. I would think that of those options, that would be the one to choose. Exactly. That's how I would answer that on a multiple choice test. So then I have this uh, kind of flow chart. You know, you have education is a life. Life is sustained on ideas and ideas are of spiritual origin. And then we have parents over here. Parents are the ones who sustain the child with their ideas. And the job of the parent, the duty of parents, is to sustain the child's inner life with ideas as they sustain his body with food. He chooses what he likes. This or that. 
But our job is to sow the seed in the morning and not withhold our hands because we don't know which one they're going to like. We are seeing this with our children and food right now. It is the most frustrating thing in the world. (laughs) They will eat something ravenously for one meal and then reject it out of hand the next. Or even from one minute to the next. I had avocado for, I was having avocado for lunch with the twins. Lily did not want anything to do with it. Nothing for the first half of the meal. And then she couldn't get enough of it. It's so frustrating. (sighs) But our job is just to give it to them. (laughs) And And it needs to be good. Their throats. No. No. (laughs) It needs to be good because they have affinities for good and evil. Yeah. So we we give them what's good, keep them from what's evil. And I think this goes into censorship and protecting your children. Where especially in these early years where these the formation of ideas and characters become mm-hmm. begins, we have to protect from evil. Yeah. We have to create that hedge. And that's not looked upon as favorably anymore. No, it's not. Uh, I remember the the controversy that surrounded the uh, first Deadpool movie. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that, Deadpool was a it was a rated R comic book movie that was truly rated R for all of the things: sex, blood, violence, language. It, it had it all. But Marvel came out with it. Uh, it was Fox. Well, okay, so it, you're it right. is it a was, Marvel. It was a Marvel. It was a Marvel creation. It was a Marvel, Marvel comic book. Who has come out with? Captain America, Iron Man, yeah, all Avengers. of all of the slightly less rated R versions. Now, were all the comic books explicitly rated R? No, but the the creators of this movie wanted a a rated R experience, and there were lots and lots of parents who were very upset with them because they wanted to share Deadpool, a a mutant assassin, narcissistic person with their small children and they were upset that Deadpool swore and and killed people. They wanted him to be a family friendly a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Well, he's not. That's what I was going to say. Right? They, and and at the same time they also got mad at uh whenever a Punisher movie comes out. Like we want to share Punisher with our children. I'm sorry, Punisher kills people. That that's that's his, his whole shtick. That's what he does. He he kills people mercilessly. Again, a, a Marvel comic book character. But parents were were getting offended and writing letters and wanting the studio to change things so that they could share this character with their children. Now, I enjoyed the Deadpool movie tremendously. And if you're at all a comic book or comic book movie person, I implore you to go watch it. But... It's rated R for a reason. So uh, you, you, this is one of those things that you don't share with your children. Yeah. I, it even makes me think of our family. Naomi, our, our second oldest, is very sensitive to dark or scary. Specifically audiovisual. Specifically audiovisual. But she'll even get it in books. She, she's better with books and re- books that are read out loud. But she was crying at Winnie the Pooh getting stuck. Yeah, when, when she was little in the in the old Winnie the Pooh show, and I don't know if she's watched those recently, 
But yeah, when Winnie the Pooh gets stuck in Rabbit's doorway and his bottom is in Rabbit's wall and Rabbit is very sad and Pooh basically has to then starve himself for a week so that he can fit through. Yes, he got stuck and and she lost it. She couldn't handle the fact that he was stuck. Yeah. So so she's very sensitive to that. So we as a family, we don't watch movies. We sat down with our cousins who they watched some and we tried to watch Finding Nemo. She got to I think the very first time that Nemo gets captured or fished or whatever. And he cut out the first the the first scenes. Yeah, we cut out the first scenes where mom dies or the mother clownfish dies. We cut out those first scenes because we can explain that mom's not around. Not a big deal. But it was just that one little bit of, oh no, that she lost it. And she, she left. And she happily played elsewhere and kind of watched when she could and she left when she couldn't. Yeah. So we don't, we don't watch movies because we're supposed to hedge about the children from any chance lodgment of evil ideas. We're supposed to know our children. And we're supposed to treat them as individuals. Therefore, knowing our daughter, we don't watch movies that are gonna be that are that are going to be beyond her. Yep. So And this this idea begets another idea. And every study, every line of thought leads to another one. And she starts talking about infallible reason and how it's actually not infallible. While it does modify our brain structure and goes to certain places and we get into these matters of thinking, we need to make sure that it gets us to the right place Mm -hmm. because reason can lead us to wrong conclusions. Yeah. I don't think most people would wake up and think that the, and I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go way out here in left field. I don't think most people would wake up and think that wiping out, an entire race from the face of the earth would be a good thing. Genocide. And yet, over and over throughout history, we've gotten there. And it makes sense when you put yourself into that person's thought process and go down through their logic and go, okay, if this, then that. If that, then this. You go through enough of those chains. Well, we got to get rid of that race of people because, because. And, and yeah, I'm going out on a limb here. No one wakes up, you know, one day with, with no reason one way or the other and be like, oh, that whole race of people, let's just, let's just get rid of them all. But you get there or, or it has, it has gotten there any number of times. And she goes on to talk about how within that atmosphere of a child, these things by the light scoff at holy things. I I like this whole paragraph. I, I wanted to read this whole thing. Okay, I'm going to let you do that then. Thus we seek how the destiny of a life is shaped in the nursery by the reverent naming of the divine nature, by the light scoff at holy things, by the thought of duty the little child gets who is made to finish conscientiously his little task, by the hardness of heart that comes to the child who hears the faults or sorrows of others spoken of lightly. She's giving two sides of the same coin here, and she does it a couple times by the reverent naming of the divine name, or by the light scoff at holy things. Those are, those are two sides. The child's destiny of life is going to be shaped in the nursery, one way or the other. By the thought of duty, and then the hardness of heart that can come when things have spoken of lightly. Yeah. 
And you can, you can take that to anything by hard work or by slacking, by taking joy in a job well done or taking joy in just getting a job done as quickly and sloppily as possible. Goes to back to atmosphere. Yeah. It's one of the things that I like to do with the children, I, or not even the children. I, I love making good food. I don't want to make just food. Anybody can make food. I want to make good food. I want to critique my recipes or the random spice groups I throw together. And I want to hear others' opinions on the food I make. It, it's a conversation that Crystal and I have almost any time I cook. I ask her, so what'd you think of it? What'd you think of the way the sauce tasted? What'd you think of the meat? What'd you think of this? What'd you think of the proportions? Yeah, I don't get to eat in peace. No, she doesn't. I grill her every time. Um, but not like I grill my meat because she doesn't get cooked. Because I want to know. Because I want to know how to make it better. Because I want to make it taste better or feel better or look better. And I want to know if it's, you know, should it be more spicy, less spicy? Should there be more cheese? There should always be more cheese. And that's something that I want to pass on to my children with regards specifically to food. But the hope is that that idea will trickle down to more than just food. That we always want to improve. We always want to get better. And if we're doing something, we should do that something to the best of our abilities. And we should work to get better at it. Um, we've talked about me playing Frisbee a couple of times. Well, two years ago, I could throw a Frisbee okay backhanded. That was it. That was my only throw that I had in my arsenal. So what did I do over the summer? I got a bunch of Frisbees from my cousin, and I threw them. And I threw them, and I threw them, and I threw them. And I got to the point where I could throw a Frisbee pretty well. And I need to go throw a Frisbee more. To pony off that, our youngest will pick up anything Frisbee-like and throw it like a Frisbee, where our older ones wouldn't. Right, because Isaac has seen me throw Frisbees and throw them and throw them. And in the house, I'll take the little Frisbees and chuck them across the house. He plays fetch. It is amazing. It's funny. <laughs> and he's done it for a long time. But yeah, so, you know, the children have seen me do that. And I hope that they can learn from that as well. That that can be a part of this atmosphere is that, oh, dad works hard to get better at the things he wants to get better at. That means I should do the same. It means I need to practice. Yep. It's a high calling. It is. It is. The other side of this, the, the second part, by the hardness of heart that comes to the child who hears the faults or sorrows of others spoken of lightly. One of the things that we do in our home is we do not allow our children to laugh when someone gets hurt. Because it's really easy to do if someone gets hurt in a kind of funny way. And Crystal and I do it to each other a lot. Because, oh, you stubbed your toe on that thing. <laughs> That's funny. But that lends a lightness to the fact that someone just hurt themselves. And we noticed at some point our children picking up on this lightness of, of thought towards someone else getting hurt. And we had to correct ourselves. We had to correct ourselves. And we had to work to correct, to correct them in that behavior as well. So parenting is a high calling, yet again. And we're back to that. I just killed a fruit fly. I was trying to get my wine. Spit it out. Spit it out. It was not all the way in. Good. I did not have to fish it out. Good. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Cheap Wine. 
<laughs> Coming from Martin's Grocery Store. I don't even know what it's called because it had a weird name. It had a really weird name. And it's also... You're screw- reading. It's screw top Wine. Yeah. Which is... It's screw top Wine. I... It, uh... I feel I feel a little bit strange looking down on screw top wine when we buy the cheapest wine possible anyway. Whatever. Thank you for listening. Check us out at charlottemasonsays.com. If you enjoy what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe rate and give us a review on iTunes. If you want to get a hold of us, email us at charlottemasonsays at gmail.com or join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cmsays.com.